Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with the anonymous writer of the Systematic Investing Substack. The Substack focuses on global systematic equity investing. He has chronicled his investing journey on Twitter and on the Substack. He's a German-based engineer deploying his personal savings. He uses a systematic approach to identify attractively priced stocks. He has a wide net with his global approach. He also created a very useful tool, the Ken French Database Explorer, which allows you to explore the Ken French data set that is only available in Excel on his website. And he allows you to do it with some visualizations and tools to kind of easily comb through the data. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. So how'd you first get interested in investing? Yeah. So I first have to admit that in Germany, the financial and investing culture is not that developed as it is maybe in the US. So me as a German-based investor, I basically got into in investing first with school-based investing contests, as many people before me and after me. And it instantly got me hooked. And from there, of course, I started my own journey and got into different types of investing. And yes, now I ended up in the systematic investing or factor investing space. And it was a really, yeah, a long journey. I think I first started out like over 15 years ago, but back then basically, yeah, still as a child in school, but learned a lot on the way and was influenced by many different investors. And we can talk about this a bit how this journey was in detail, but yeah, I ended up in systematic investing, especially because it was the first approach that really spoke to me in a sense of solving my problems because I started out as a discretionary investor and I was more or less successful, I guess, in the time yeah, around 2014 to 2018. However, I always felt like I'm missing, yeah, I'm missing a real plan. Basically, I was skimming through different investment cases and always looking via screens or Peter Lynch style approaches for investment cases I understand, which look cheap and which have a good growth potential in the future. But I never had this comparison about my opportunity costs and if I'm really doing the right thing. And I started listening to podcasts, yeah, maybe in the time at 2018, 19. And then on yeah, the podcast of Tobias Carlyle, I was, I was coming into first contact with him and then also into contact with Jim O'Shaughnessy. And his book, What Works on Wall Street, was for me like the Kickstarter, which really 
boosted my <laughs> my journey into this direction of factor-based investing. And yeah, from there, I started to invest my own money this way. And I tweaked my process. And here I am doing this since 2019. And so far, I'm more or less really satisfied with the with the uh, results and looking forward to continuing with this. <laughs> and I'm, uh, of course, always happy to share and finding people who are also interested. Cool. And so you mentioned earlier that financial educate that finance isn't as big a thing in Germany. Why do you think that's the case? Is it because is it because the retirement pensions are better? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think a, a global concept. Every so everyone thinks about the Germans in the context of German angst and German savers. So it's really a common approach here to go into really, really passive vehicles and approaches, basically life insurance policies and just saving on your bank accounts. And we don't have this broad network of financial advisors and financial educators here. And the common way for a normal person is to go to the bank advisor and to trust him. And in this way, also, I am I'm the typical finance guy in my office, for example. The people come to me with, with certain contracts they got from their bank advisor or funds they got uh, suggested to save. And you quickly notice that these are really high fee funds, which basically just replicate MCI World or S&P 500 concept, but with very high fees. And the whole concept of ETF investing, for example, is really just starting to get a real hold in the broad community in, in, in Germany. Of course, there's always... There's always the, the geeks who know how to invest and they know all the things. But for the common common worker, the common saver, it's still the standard to go to your bank advisor and just trust him. And of course, with this lobby, we, don't, we even don't have so much access to different ETF products like you do in the US. And it's difficult. It takes a lot of time to educate and... Where I can, I, I try to help if someone has asked questions so that they don't pay too much fees on their products. Gotcha. And, and, and are Vanguard like products and index funds available in Germany? So we have the really basic stuff and also mm -hmm. in the realm of factor investing, all the big providers, they, they have products in, in Germany and in Europe available. Of course, regulations, they are a bit stricter and... So really niche boutique products, they are not available here. But it's more about, yeah, it's more a problem about the advertising and getting the information to the people that it's okay to, to buy a low fee index fund and invest regularly. However, we have a lot of provision-based advisors and you, you when, when your first step is to go to a bank, of course, they at first want to sell you their products, which are higher fee. And we also, we don't have a lot of constructs you have in the US, for example, to, to 
have different retirement savings accounts or something like this, because we have a, yeah, a public pension system and for every private savings and investing on top, you are basically on your own. So that's why also it, it lacks the, the incentive for financial, for financial education. Gotcha. And uh, you mentioned Jim O'Shaughnessy. So I'm a huge fan of his work and I'm, I'm kind of getting the impression from reading your stuff that his book, what works on wall street has been a major influence on you. Is that, is that correct? Yes. It was my real first contact with the world space of factor-based investing because the way he describes the financial history, the financial market history by slicing and dicing the market, and doing so in a really accessible way, also for retail investors, as opposed to uh, like, if you go really into the detail of academic works uh, in, in the factor space, it was a really good entry into in the, the whole field. And that's, of course, why it's also the largest influence looking, looking back to how I started. Gotcha. And what were some of the big lessons you picked up from his work? So one of the biggest lessons, if you, if you now consider that financial education is not a big thing here, from financial media, you get first the impression without any prior knowledge that you have to kind of time the market. That is always dangerous to invest and that you have to really pay attention and you can only make money by basically riding the cycle and going in and out of different investments and seeing this these long data sets in a really accessible way first showed me really that there is such a thing as long-term investing we don't have to you have to don't have to worry all the time about the market cycle and you can achieve this by just cap-weighted uh, passive indexing, but you can improve on that by using factor-based overlays. And I think the, 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 the first learning, of course, for a young guy like me was, I can make money off this. I can <laughs> improve my returns. Uh, I can boost my retirement savings and so on. But I think I quickly shifted from this to more of an understanding like I can use these factors to express my personal investment philosophy without having to sacrifice a lot of or having to do too much work with this on top and going on this emotional roller coaster, riding the cycle and constantly worrying if, if I'm doing the right thing. Because if you see these long data sets, it really shows you that with a systematic approach over the long term, you will be all right. Gotcha. And before you adopted a more systematic approach, you talk about like timing the market and the emotional roller coaster investing. Do you have some experience doing some more discretionary investing? And how has that led to your current approach? Yeah, as I mentioned, I started out as basically Peter Lynch style value or GARP type investor, where I basically looked for opportunities 
broad secular trends in different industries from businesses I personally can understand, but I already use basic components of what you would call now a systematic factor approach. So of course, I looked at different value metrics. I also looked at profitability, and but it was more it, with a discretionary overlay deciding if this company as a whole has large growth potential over the next 10 years. However, I quickly noticed that this is not for me because as soon as I touch something discretionary, I become very emotional with this. That's just a personal trait I have. And I think this is also one of the most important learnings for me that you should not, yeah, you should really not ignore who you are and you should really listen, <laughs> listen to your own personality. If you are too emotional in, in such situations, you need a systematic approach. And I was lacking that. And I was more or less successful with the, with the discretionary investing. However, when I found out about quantitative systematic approaches, this was the first time in my investing journey that I really, I really had a, a process I can stick to. Um, was there any particular investment that got you particularly emotional and was like, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> I, I would not say that this was one particular investment. However, I quickly noticed that the entry is always really simple if you invest in a discretionary approach. So you build your investment case, you find out about a company which has good prospects, which is properly run, which does all the right things. However, then you invest in it, but you, then you have to always ask yourself, is your investment thesis still intact? What's the opportunity cost? Am I missing something? Especially, of course, if the stock goes down, we all know this. <laughs> if the stock uh, is trending upwards, it's no problem. However, especially if it's not moving or if you are underperforming. I really lacked this discretionary judgment if there's a better out of opportunity out there. And I think factor-based investing gives a really cl a clear rule book in this regard. Because also there, the entry is really easy. However, if you use momentum or value-based strategies, they give you a clear guideline at which threshold or at which your tolerance band you pre-described, you should consider replacing the stock with a better opportunity. And I really lacked this rule-based guideline. And of course, this is a really a highly personal question. And there are people who really thrive with these discretionary approaches. They are um, yeah, that, that's, debatable. To... that's debatable. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, some people, some people just they but tell themselves that <laughs> they might However, not be willing to accept reality. <laughs> yeah, but for me, it was a re it's a real relief to basically outsource the decision making process. So all the research, all all my brain work goes into the process, but then the process itself does the decision-making for me. If I have to do my own decision-making in real time with discretionary investments, 
it's really hard to stay disciplined and always keep your emotions out of it, at least for me. And I quickly acknowledged that. And that was the point where I knew I want to do quantum investing. Gotcha. And has your science and engineering background, do you think that that played a role in moving towards a more systematic quantitative approach? It's difficult to tell in, in hindsight. I think because I, I always had it in me, I guess, <laughs> because even as a discretionary investor, I, I was really driven by quantitative approaches, I guess, without knowing it. So I was always the screener type of guy. I, I needed a first, a first hint by screening for quantitative matrix. And from there, I tried to bring discretionary point of view into it, perspective into it. However, I think also just from the, I ended up in the same place with my, with, with my actual day job as an engineer, because I'm a numbers driven guy. For example, I am, I, I will never do an investment just because I'm really, really impressed by management of, of a company or something. That's just not the way my brain works. I am actually, I will always be skeptical about what management has to say. And also management has has no <laughs> no real impact on my current investing style. It's just show me what they do. If they yeah. do buybacks, if the company is run profitably, if they don't need a lot of external financing. Yeah, show me what they do, not what I say. It'll show up in the numbers if you have yeah. good management. Yeah. Yeah. And I think plus the other challenging thing with management is like, especially if you're talking about an S&P 500 company, the CEO of any S&P 500 company is by their very nature, a very charismatic, solid communicator, and they can probably sell ice to an Eskimo. So <laughs> I, I think it's hard to really assess them. And I, I think there's investors out there who, who really know how to play this, this game to write narrative cycles to maybe even, yeah, put oil in the fire, <laughs> even if this maybe is a bit uh, borderline more in a moral point of view. However, I'm not this type of guy. And I think you, as an investor, when you start out, you should ask yourself if you are more socially driven, narrative driven, and if you can find a process which fits this personality, or if you are a numbers guy, and if you should really crunch the numbers, even if this means that you still want to do it in a discretionary manner, but then you should really maybe focus on this and not what I see many people do is they, they read about Warren Buffett and they try to be the next Warren Buffett, even though they are not made for it. So you should find an investment approach which fits your personality and not force your personality into the shoes of some investor you admire for some reason. Yeah. I think it doesn't work this way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your actual, the nuts and bolts of your strategy. So you are multi-factor, you're looking at valuation, you're looking at quality, you're looking at a momentum. So let's go through them kind of one by one. So let's start with value. So what are your valuation criteria? So basically 
I use a value composite approach, which is based on trading matrix only. So I don't use any forward earnings metrics or similar. So no analyst-based data. I really only use trailing data. But from there, I don't, don't use a single metric. And I think uh, everyone who has read Jim O'Shaughnessy's book, or even better, if you read, if you read the different versions of his book over the years, you see that even these single value metrics can go through cycles. So in the beginning, maybe the best was price to book. Then afterwards, we had a period where price to sales was really promising. Then I think we went to periods where price to cash flow had a nice run. And over the last 10 years, I guess, the most popular stuff was looking at EV2 EBIT multiples. And you yeah. can do the same with shareholder yield or dividend yield. Even there, it's really hard to say what is best. And there's, there's a lot of practitioner evidence that you should not crown a king in this regard, not only for value, but for, for, for any factor category. Most robust way is often to just use a composite. That's so, funny because I think he literally called price to sales the king yes. of valuation yes. ratios in the first book. And then, yeah, and, and then in uh, later evolved. versions, he evolved. And he also talks about this that this was one of his main mistakes. And, but, but he, he openly talks about uh, his learnings. So, yeah, that's, that's really nice. And I think that's also a, a key aspect of this whole space that. It's no dogmatic, okay, Pharma French, they published their first paper and we have to stay with this. Even though from an academic point of view, uh, these structures are often more rigid, but for practitioners, they, they keep evolving basically. And the common approach nowadays often is, and I think it's also a really robust approach to use a value composite. So yeah. he, he, he advocates for that in the new book. So yeah, I, yeah. I, you're on the same page there. So basically you rank your stock universe on each single metric price to book. I still use price to book. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can talk about this later. I think it maybe has its problems, especially in the large cap space. However, because I mainly focus on small and micro caps, I think there it has still it's kept its its value, but you have to be aware maybe of some implications if you if you use it because of certain sector applications and so on. And then I use price to sales on top, EV2 EBITs, EV2 free cash flow. I use shareholder yield, classic price to earnings, and I combine them to a single rank. And that's basically my, my baseline value composite. And now, of course, there's always, especially from outside the factorial realm, there's always this controversy. If you're just looking in the rear view mirror, and basically what happens is you load up on optically cheap stocks, and a lot of them, which are in the top of their cycle, of their business cycle, and they will experience negative growth going forward. And basically, you just built 
a portfolio of, of value traps. So this is, of course, a worry many people share. Mm -hmm. And everyone who maybe picked a few value stocks just based on a screener, <laughs> they did this once and they burned their fingers and then they quit because you will get a lot of value traps, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I've had I've had a pretty similar experience. And I find that adding things like price to sales and price to book to the mix and looking at that helps you avoid some of those things that might have optically cheap PEs or price to cash flow. I would even argue that a price to book or price to sales is more like a classic value metric you would expect to be mean reverting because mm -hmm. sales and book value move really slowly or at least they should for most businesses right whereas earnings is much more volatile and you get more into a pro cyclical approach because what you basically do when you buy a a low pe stock is you you buy a stock of a business who earned very well over, over the last 12 months and you are betting on this continuing or at least the earnings holding up well enough to exceed the market expectations so you bet against the market who is really negative about the continuation of these earnings so this makes it in my opinion, really pro-cyclical. And if you combine this with the, with these more anti-cyclical value components, you get a smoother value signal. And I, I think also the anonymous writer, Jesse Limormore, he showed this very nicely in the OSEM paper of his, where he dismantled the returns of value. And what happens if you look at it from really from a earnings or EPS point of view in your portfolio, value stocks on average, they really have negative growth going forward. So directionally, the market is right in being skeptical, being negative in their view about the stock. However, the earnings still tend to beat the market expectations, resulting in a multiple re-rating, which exceeds the negative effect of the EPS growth. So basically what happens is you rotate through these, yeah, sometimes really chunky <laughs> value traps, but a lot of them just beat their earnings expectations, which are really negative. And there's also a nice a nice chart I know from Matthias Hardauer, which is a German-based factor researcher at Robico. And they have a nice chart that analyst expectations, they are directionally right over the next five years. But you clearly see that for growth stocks, they are overestimating future earnings consistently. And for value stocks, they are underestimating future earnings. And that's why I actually, I don't like calling these factor-based trailing valuation metric approaches. I, I don't like this calling this a value because it gives you a lot of conflict potential with Buffett style value investors who are really looking for long-term compounder or something like this. 
Yeah, it's um, more like cheap versus expensive. Like it's value like, is kind of a loaded term. It's it's more like cheap versus expensive or basically just low expectations investing. Because a cheap multiple is just the market saying that current earnings are not sustainable or current cash flows are not sustainable. And going forward, if you have low expectations, a slight beat can result in a multiple re-rating. And I think historically, at least that's what the data shows, uh, this is where most of the return comes from. Gotcha. And so you also look at quality. So that's kind of a broad category. So what are the quality factors that you look for? So first, you have to acknowledge that if you use a value composite, you are already mixing a lot of quality signal in there because if you use price to free cash flow, price to cash flow and price to earnings together, for example, you get already a mixed signal, which gives you some information about accruals. Because per definition, if you use these together, you won't have you won't buy a stock which has maybe positive earnings but negative cash flows. On the other hand, also you get already a good signal about profitability because if you if your price to earnings and your price to cash flow sign metrics are positive, of course your stock has to be profitable. Then not so long ago, last week or so, I posted a chart showing what happens if you only buy the high highest the stocks in the microcap space with the highest net share issuance. And these have naturally disastrous returns. So if you are using shareholder yield or buyback yield in your approach, you already exclude those worst diluters from your approach. So you get already a lot of signals in your value composite. And I have to admit that currently my quality metric has a really low weight because I did some own research and backtesting and quickly noticed. And you can also kind of read this from what Jim O'Shaughnessy described in his book. If you are already using value and momentum, which about momentum we will talk later next, I guess, the quality signal often adds not too much on top. But that's more like a personal touch. Of course, if you if you really want to exclude certain types of businesses which have unstable cash flows, which have low profitability, so really a marginal profitability or return on invested capital, you can exclude these. But also that's that's often a, a, a thing researchers and practitioners, for example, like Tobias Call I talk about, he actually finds if you take Greenblatt's magic formula, which combines EB to EBIT and return on invested capital, that's actually in the data a pure value approach without looking at the return on invested capital does better. And there's much debate. And of course, also quality, it's it's the most debatable factor, I guess, because there is not really this, this risk-based ex- explanation why it should work. Why should you 
as an investor be con compensated for buying the highest quality stocks. And secondly, if you buy a high quality, you, you miss a lot of value opportunities from the deep value space. And that's quality for me. That, uh, that's why quality for me is more like a way to express your investment philosophy. But I am not really currently giving it too much weight in my approach. Gotcha. So, so you're more about capital allocation. Like, are they not diluting shareholders and the stability of cash flows versus the focus on returns on capital? Am I reading that right? I would describe it like this. There are effect investors who really look for high quality. And basically my approach just looks for threshold quality. And this is already reached with the value composite gotcha. uh, in, in a sufficient way. Okay. And you've so we talked about the impact of buybacks and how you want to avoid share diluters. So I know you've done backtesting work on share diluters versus like serial buyback companies. What are the actual differences in the returns between those two groups? So I would have to look up the exact numbers again. Of course, you can always find this also in my in my app, in my web tool, where I just can you where you can visualize the can French data on your own, and it highly depends, of course, on the underlying yeah universe you are looking at. So especially in the microcaps, which are interesting for me, basically you get most of the returns especially in the last 20 years, I guess, if you just avoid the worst offenders. And I would say that based on the breakpoints French, Ken French does give in his, in his database, this would say everything above 5% net share issuance annually, those are really the worst offenders you should avoid. Then you get this bowl area in between where it's, it's more noise than signal. It's not, you cannot really decide there quickly that there's a gradual improvement if you dilute less and less. It's, it really depends on the single situation there. So you cannot just exclude these stocks based on a certain threshold. However, then if you go to the real buybackers, you get a positive effect again. So from what I know, the shareholder yield really does not follow the perfect linear distribution of returns if you sort the stocks by by shareholder yield or buyback yield it's more like a s curve and i think that's also what what jim O'Shaughnessy found that yeah you have the worst offenders you should avoid avoid those like the plague but then what's really moving the needle are the conviction buybackers basically which decide that Stocks looking cheap, and they are currently earning a lot of cash flow, and they will use this to buy back 20% of their stock. Because then you get a mixed signal of cheapness and quality and good management. Yeah. I actually, so I actually just looked up the numbers that you posted. So you had for the, for the bucket of companies that, dilute shareholders the, the most, the 20% of the market, they have a cumulative CAGR of 3.82%, 2.2% 2 
the market returned 10.2% over that period. And then if you stick to the companies that consistently buy back, your CAGR is 17.38%. So pretty massive difference. Yeah, of course, like this is really micro cap stocks and you should apply all disclaimers that depending on your liquidity needs, it can be really hard to, to really achieve those returns, especially if you include friction. But the nice thing is that just by excluding those worst offenders, you can actually build a system which has not, not much turnover. And you could even say as a discretionary investor that you just avoid playing in those games. Because if, of course, if, if you are a biotech expert or if you are an exploration expert, you maybe find certain pre-revenue stocks in the space which have really promising prospects and you have maybe insider knowledge which proves you right. However, for the average investor, you should, should just avoid those. That would be the, the short, short way. Of course, if you want to rotate really frequently through the highest buyback stocks, this becomes more like a real active strategy with all implications for trading costs and so on. Cool. And another big part of your approach is momentum. So what are some of the factors you look for to determine stock momentum? So for stock momentum, I also, I just use really basic momentum metrics with different lookback look back periods. So over 12, six and nine months. And I also use on top regression-based and a shop ratio-based metric. And I build like a momentum composite from this. And here you can, of course, tweak and backtest and try to find the best look-back periods, the best indicators. You can go to moving averages and so on. But then you get the high risk of getting too cute with the actual specification of, of your metrics. And I'm more of the of the type getting it roughly right rather than precisely wrong. And even here, even in the momentum space and the technical indicator space, using composites is the most robust way. So of course... Momentum is a really controversial factor, especially classic value investors. They hate hate applying momentum. Eugene Fama doesn't like it either. Yeah, because first it's hard to define why something that goes up should provide an outperformance. So you cannot, again, provide a real risk-based uh, explanation for this. So the most explanations become behavioral because you get this trickle-down effect of information and you you have basic inertia in, in the market so that the news flow also creates this constant inflow of new investors. We, we see this, of course, for example, this year with AI stocks and so on, that we have some real experts who see identify the, the trend really early they get invested and we get maybe some insiders insider positioning the start, stock starts moving up and many would even go so far that 
narrative then follows Bryce instead of having it the other way around. And then it gets into the news and into the blocks and then the funds start loading up on these stocks because they have to position to show, to do window dressing, to show that they are in this new trend. And I think at the end, then there's an ETF provider who will basically start an ETF in the space and retail loads up on it. And then you get this whole thing, the wall way down again. So experts and insiders sell first, and then you get news flow, which is negative and so on and so on. And of course you have basic cycles like the business cycle and seasonality effects, which also kind of support the momentum in its lookbacks. Because one, I think one of the major risks will always be that, for example, markets become faster. And if you then use fixed lookback period, maybe your signal vanishes. So that's always the risk. However, if you use it in a combined approach, I think momentum is a nice addition because it's a nice diversifier, especially if you use it together with value, because the most value traps, they show really bad momentum. And if you buy them just purely on value, you will be too early. And as we all know, being too early at a certain point, you cannot distinguish from being wrong. So momentum just keeps you out of, out of, out of these value traps, which just keep on falling. And if there's momentum, there's always a hidden signal that growth prospects of the stock increased, or there's some special situation. Maybe even there's some ins insider activities, which you cannot really quantify or you cannot really grasp because the information just doesn't get out, but it shows in the price. And the nice thing about momentum is that it doesn't really matter what's the reason why prospects improve, why the market decides that today's stock price should be higher than six months or 12 months ago. So you are really flexible in this regard. And you get a portfolio, which is yeah, com a combined portfolio of stocks, which are growing, but also which are just coming out of a turnaround or where there is some ex acquisition, acquisition plant or something like this. So instead, if you just would focus on growth, of course, you just get this exact information for a potential improvement whereas momentum is much more flexible in this regard. Gotcha. And so I know you look in the microcap space. So what's the specific market capitalization you look at and why do you focus on the microcap area? Yeah. So if you look at factor investing in a broad sense, you see that over the last decade or decades, factors did not really perform in the same way they did prior to these periods. And it can be partially explained for value, for example, through the value spread. And we, we, you could argue that 
due to the zero interest rates, we got a really special period, which boosted growth stocks and so on. However, you could also make the argument that nowadays this de facto space got so financialized, so hyper-financialized through all the different ETFs, which are available today, that the large cap space became much more efficient because every, everyone has access to the data nowadays. Everyone is looking at the same, same 500 stocks and we have thousands of different ways of slicing and dicing the market. And at a certain point, you would expect that at least the factory returns in this space would narrow down, even if they don't vanish. I think it just becomes a lower probability of outperformance going forward. Whereas when you look at the micro cap space, you see quickly that in this space, there is just no overlap with common ETFs. And I think, so my personal definition as of today, I, I, I always have to update this. I look in the space below 700, 750 million US dollar market cap. And I think that's also approximately the break point in the French data price right now. And you will not, you will not find these stocks in like a Russell 2000 value or something like this. And even there, you have to acknowledge that most ETFs and most funds nowadays are still market cap weighted. So even if you apply a value approach or a factor-based approach in, in, in those portfolios, the micro caps, they will have a really low weighting or no weighting at all. And through this, I think there's a lot of opportunity so I listened to your previous guest. He, he brought up a lot of good points why there is opportunity in microcaps. And I think one really appealing thing is that you have broad indices like Russell 2000 or even the microcap, broad microcap ETFs like IWC, where you just get a broad mix of all microcaps or small caps available. And... When you then look at the statistics, like I showed that the worst offenders, which are diluting their stock by 5% or more, perform horribly. And it's defined here in the database as a quintile, but actually those make up like 40% of the microcap space. And if you mix them all in, then you get a broad, a broad microcap space performance, which is not really attractive. However, in this way, all the good stocks, the profitable stocks, the growing stocks, the cheap stocks, which are really good investment opportunities, they stay under the radar because also they are not accessible. For many people look in broad exposures or, or think in broad exposures nowadays, if they want microcap exposure, maybe they just buy a broad index, but this will not narrow down the inefficiencies in those space if you buy the broad index. So if you are small and flexible as an investor, I think this is just the best way to get an edge, to lose or uh, to use your low liquidity needs and go there where the big players cannot go. 
and the data would support this. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. And so once you've constructed this, how many stocks are in the portfolio? So I currently use approximately 30 positions. I'm not too strict with this because with these basic approaches, a nice thing, or at least I think a, a factor system should be built in a way that you should, it should not fall a cliff if you change the implicate the application in a, in a slight way at, at, at the corners, at the borders. So it should not fall off a cliff just because now I'm using 25 stocks instead of 30 stocks. So I apply the strategy with 30 stocks right now, but if it's 25, uh, 29 stocks or 31 stocks, it's not so critical. And I do an equal weighting wherever possible. And of course, for me, myself, when I do the screening once a week, and check for my current positions and I have to re replace something, I have to still pay attention to the liquidity of the stocks because there are certain nano caps, which even for me as a small investor, as a small retail investor are just too illiquid. And you have to always assume that it, even though the average turnover of the system is like 100%, annually. So basically you have an average holding period of one year. You should always assume that you might have to stock, uh, you, you might have to sell the stock one month going forward. So it should provide at least sufficient liquidity that you could manage to trade without losing too much to, on trade frictions, spreads, and so on. Gotcha. So, okay. So we've, you've constructed a portfolio with that are cheap with composite value metrics. You're looking in the microcap universe, you're screening for quality, looking for things like capital allocation and consistency of cash flows. You've screened for momentum, you own 30 stocks. So now how do you determine when is the right time to sell? Do you rebalance once a year, once every six months? Are there other considerations that come into the rebalances? So as I started out with basically trending value approach, uh, like uh, proposed by Jim O'Shaughnessy, I also started out with an annual holding period, basically buying stocks in a shifted manner. So I built my portfolio that I, I divided the year into equal periods. And in each of these periods, I replaced one stock. However, I held it exactly for one year. Since then, I shifted more to continuous checking methodology. So basically weekly, I screen for the current data and I check all my current holdings for their factor loadings or their factor ranks. And I replace them when they, yeah, when, when their factor rank goes below a certain threshold value. So basically I have a tolerance band of 10%. And if it goes below that, the stock has to be replaced. And of course, for this exact implementation, I used a well-known data provider on the internet for backtesting, not to data mine and improve my system, but just to check how wide should I use 
so how, how wide should I set the tolerance band so that there's a nice balance between the turnover and the trading costs and the actual signal quality. So because you can, of course, also loosen this tolerance band to 30% or so, and this will reduce your annual turnover and reduce your trading costs. However, then also this will reduce your signal. So you have to find a balance there, which fits your liquidity needs, but also which you can still handle. Ooh, okay. And so last but not least, so I know that you invest globally. So how do you try to mitigate global risks? So for instance, we saw recently Russian stocks. They had many attractive value kind of opportunities, decent businesses with large margins of safety and high shareholder yield, but they were in Russia and basically they, they're they effectively zeros because you can't get capital out of Russia. So how do you control for some of those risks? Yeah, so this, that's a really difficult part because there a quantitative screen will always fail and even momentum did not save you from Russian stocks because they performed really well going into 2022, depending on the underlying sector or industry. I was also caught up in one Russian stock. I still hold it, but I don't know if I actually hold it. So if I if the capital will ever be available to me. And especially for these sudden geopolitical events, you cannot prepare for this in a purely quantitative screen. And that's one reason why, why I made the shift to only investing in developed countries going forward. So before that, I also owned Chinese stocks and South American emerging market stocks. I would not say that I fully exclude emerging markets. For example, I'm currently also strongly invested in Poland, which technically is defined as emerging market still. However, I like the approach approaches like proposed by Perf Toll, where you have where you check for a certain amount of democracy and like a liberty index or something like this, where you can be sure or at least partly certain that your rights as a shareholder are somewhat protected in the country you invest in. And currently, I cannot really confirm this for me personally, when, for example, investing in China. So that's why I exclude certain countries where, yeah, certain indexes, which are also available nowadays, which rank the liberty, democracy, and financial freedom for each country in the world, where this is not in the realm of what I would say safe or in Western standards. But beyond that, of course, you will always have currency risks, you will have geographical risks, but also geopolitical risks. But I think I'm in the camp that global diversification has its benefits. I, I will never be a pure US investor or a pure European investor. So mixing different geographies into your approach, if you know financial history, 
I think there's no question that there's benefits to geographical diversification. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And for my last question, so what is the Ken French Database Explorer and why did you construct it? So basically, I found myself asking myself the same questions over and over again. And I know I always knew where to get the data and then... <laughs> The easiest way to get the data quickly for free is uh, the Ken French vector database. But everyone who ever worked with it knows that the layout and how the data is provided is, is not the most user-friendly experience and also can be really time-consuming when you have to read and clean the data, manipulate it, and visualize it using Excel or any other program. So at a certain point, I was frustrated and I said, okay, let's read all the data and write a program or write a script, which basically provides me a quick way to answer the main questions and visualize the, the main charts, the main statistics for the single factor sort portfolios which is another problem because most academic studies, they focus on long, short constructions. So you often get a pure conclusion, a pure uh, information about the factor in itself, which is for academic interpretations, a really nice way, but for retail practitioner, often it's useless because what do I do? Usually, especially in the microcap space, the short legs are often useless to you because you, even if you wanted to, you cannot short these stocks. So what you do is you construct long only portfolios and due to the fact that many factors or many metrics have really asymmetrical return distributions, looking at the long short factors can provide you a really, uh, yeah, distorted picture. So what I did was to use all the sort portfolio data for the size and factor portfolios they have on their database. And on the data explorer, you can basically choose a combinations of combination of those sort portfolios and plot them together and analyze them together. And yeah, work is still in process. So everyone who wants to try it out and has some suggestions for making it even better or adding some features can hit me up on Twitter. And I'm using it daily. <laughs> and I'm glad for every user who can, yeah, pull some benefits from it. And that's why it's publicly available for everyone. Awesome. And what are the best places to reach you for people who have those questions? So I'm mainly on Twitter under the handle SystWest, Systematic Microcaps. And that's where you can find me daily, I guess. And apart from that, if you have something specific, just write me a DM and from there we can go further. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.